Okay, please turn with me to Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. As I said last week when we started introducing this, that we have come to the crescendo, the climax of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and here's what Jesus says in these two verses. He says, Enter through the narrow gate, <clears throat> for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Uh, this is the point towards which Jesus has been driving uh, in all of the sermon leading up to this point. He brings the whole thing to the climax of a decision, a choice. Uh, two gates, uh, which bring the individual to two roads, which lead to two destinations, which are populated by two different crowds. Um, and Jesus then focuses on the inevitable decision that has to be made regarding what he has been saying. And he demands a choice, uh, an act, an ultimate decision be made at this time and at that moment on the basis of what he has just said. Uh, and so in this masterful sermon, he has articulated the principles of living in his kingdom. And now he gives a choice to either enter it or stay out of it. That's the choice he wants every man to consider. He demands a response. Now, some people might say, well, how in the world could Jesus make such a clear-cut issue about religion when there's so many religious systems in the world? Well, actually, as we said last week, there's only two, the true and the false, uh, the right and the wrong. And there's the two religions of the true gospel of Jesus Christ and everything else. Uh, which are false. And so and then we said last week it's not it's a contrast here is not between religion and paganism. It's not a contrast between godly Christianity and irreligious people, uh, pagan people, openly lewd, lascivious, immoral masses on their merry way to hell. It's not that at all. It's a contrast of two kinds of religions, both of which are on roads that are marked this way to heaven. Uh, it's a contrast between divine righteousness and human righteousness, between divine religion and human religion, between true religion and false religion. Uh, those are the only two systems of religion in the world. There may be 10,000 different religious names and terms, but there are only two religions. The religion of divine accomplishment, that God has done it all in Christ, and there is the religion of human achievement in which man does some of it. Uh, the religion of divine accomplishment is the religion of grace. The religion of human achievement is the religion of works. Uh, one is the re religion of faith, the other is the religion of the flesh. Uh, one's the religion of the heart, the other is the religion of external flesh. Uh, Man-made systems of religion are based on the fact that we don't really need a savior because we have the capability and the capacity to develop our own righteousness. Uh, just give us a religious environment, give us a few rules, a few routines and rituals, and we'll make it on our own. That's the religion of human achievement, and it comes under myriads of different titles. Uh, but it's all the same system because it spawned out of the same source, Satan himself. And he packages it in different boxes, but it's the exact same product. Uh, on the other hand, the religion of divine accomplishment is Christianity, and it stands alone. Uh, tragically, most of humanity is on the road of human achievement. 
uh, believing they can reach the highest plane of uh, potential destiny because of some innate capability and capacity through their own good works and good deeds. And so that's the contrast that's here. And so Jesus is saying, look, there are two roads marked to heaven. One is the narrow path of divine righteousness. The other is the broad highway of human righteousness. Uh, you see, the Jews had taught that they could make it on their own. Uh, that's why it's so shocking when the Apostle Paul said, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Uh, and Paul said the law came so that every mouth might be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Uh, the law came to show us our sinfulness. Uh, that, but when self-righteous, ego-centered man saw that he was sinful by the law, he didn't want to face his sinfulness. Uh, so he set the law aside, reinvented a new system that accommodated his shortcomings, and then on the basis of that man-made system, affirmed to his own mind that he was righteous. That's human achievement. And Jesus' whole thrust in the Sermon on the Mount is to break the back of that kind of system. To show them that their system didn't make it, that their view of everything is wrong. The whole purpose of the sermon is to bring them to where he began the sermon. In other words, he starts out where he wants to end up, with people who are broken with a beggarly spirit, mourning over their total sinfulness, meek in the, before the face of God and his law, and hungering and thirsting for what they know they don't have, but desperately need, uh, the righteousness of God. He wants to bring them right back to where he started, to brokenness over that sin. Jesus wants to bring mankind to a point where he realizes his utter incapability to please God in his own flesh. And in desperation, with a broken spirit, meek and mourning, he cries out for righteousness from God. But the Pharisees never got the message. They thought they were on their way to heaven, on their way to the kingdom. But Jesus forces them to rethink and make a choice. It's the same choice that every one of us has had to make as well. So we come to verses 13 and 14, and the, the concept is crystallized. There's two gates, the wide and the small. There are two ways, the broad and the narrow. There are two destinations, life and destruction. And there are two kinds of travelers, the few and the many. And as we move through the rest of the chapter, we will see that there are two kinds of trees, the good and the bad. There are two kinds of fruit, the good and the bad. There are two builders, the wise and the foolish. There are two foundations, the rock and the sand. And there are two houses that he, dis <clears throat> he discusses. In other words, <coughs> the clear-cut decision is the whole issue at the climax of the sermon. And Jesus presents the decision point in this series of contrast. As I said before, Jesus does not want applause for the virtues and ethics of his sermon. And Jesus does not want some future fulfillment of these standards. What he wants is action and a response. He forces his listeners to come to a decision. So let's begin with our first contrast here in verse 13. It is two gates. Jesus begins by saying, enter through 
the narrow gate, for the gate is wide. Stop there. Before you get to the road, you have to go through the gate. Uh, so the gate comes first, and he begins with the narrow gate. And this is basically the crux of the interpretation. So we'll spend a little more time on this. I want to develop the concept that's involved in this narrow gate. The first of all, the first thing I want you to notice is that you must enter. The verb there is an aorist active imperative. Now, unlike the present tense imperatives that we've talked about, which order ongoing action, uh, do this and keep on doing it, the aorist imperative orders a summary command. It demands a point of action right now. Do it now. Enter now. This is the time. This is the moment. This is what God is commanding. You must do this. It's not an option. It's a command, an absolute command. Jesus had been teaching them a very narrow way of life. He had repeatedly shown the narrowness of God's internal standard of righteousness in contrast to the broad external standards of Jewish tradition. Their way had all kinds of tolerance of sin, uh, for sin. They, they had all kinds of laws beyond the laws of God. They had all kinds of standards beyond the standards of God. They had invented a system that was man-made and was far-reaching, and all these kinds of things were a part of their system. And Jesus says, you've got to get rid of that garbage. You've got to stop focusing on wide-reaching, external, man-made rules and focus on narrow, internal, godly attitudes of the heart. And so Jesus says, you must enter this narrow gate. Stop looking for an easy way into the kingdom. If you're going to be in my kingdom, you've got to come on these terms. And he demanded immediate action. It's an absolute command without an alternative. It's not enough to listen to the preaching about the gate. It's not a, enough to admire the ethics, to ponder the significance of what Jesus said. You see, hell will be full of a lot of people who admired the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you've got to enter it. He says you cannot enter the kingdom unless you come on these terms, abandoning your self-righteousness, seeing yourself as a beggar in spirit, in mourning over sin, as meek before a holy God, not proud and boastful, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, not believing that you have it if you keep all your little rules. You have to enter on his terms. In fact, in John 14, 6, Jesus said what? I am the way the truth, and the life, and then what? No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's very narrow, isn't it? I mean, that's very prescribed. People say, you know, your view of Christianity doesn't give room for anyone else's viewpoint. That's exactly right. When we preach, teach, and proclaim that Christ is the only way to God, we're not proclaiming our own view of right religion, but God's revelation of truth. We don't proclaim the narrow way simply because we're already in it, or because it happens to suit our temperament, or because we're bigoted and exclusive and selfish and proud or egotistical. 
we proclaim the narrow way because it's God's way and God's only way for men to find salvation and eternal life. We proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. If God had said there were 50 ways to get to heaven, we would proclaim all 50 of them. But there aren't. We proclaim a narrow gospel because Acts 4.12 tells us there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. And 1 Timothy 2.5 says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one, no other name. It's Christ and Christ alone. It's that narrow. It's that prescribed. There are no alternatives. You must enter by an act of the will, an act of faith. You have to enter on God's terms through God's prescribed gate, and Christ is that gate. The Holy God has the right to determine the basis of salvation, and he has determined that it is Jesus Christ and him alone. And that's the way it is. So we proclaim a narrow gospel because it is the only gospel God has given and therefore the only gospel there is. And when you enter that narrow gate, you must enter alone. That's implicit in the text. If you study the term narrow, you get the idea that it's a very narrow gate. Uh, the word is only used here and in Luke 13, 24 in the New Testament. But in extra biblical literature, it was used of a window into the grave of Cyrus the king, which was described as being so narrow, quote, that it would be difficult for even a relatively small man to pass through without some distress, end quote. Another writer used it to describe a narrow, rough path that was impassable by a large group. So Jesus is talking about a gate through which people can pass one at a time. <clears throat> In fact, Many commentators have said that the best expression of this in contemporary terms would be a turnstile. Uh, a turnstile is one of those gates, you know, that you come to and you have to go through it alone. Uh, you can't take two people through a turnstile. Uh, that's the way it is with the narrow gate. You don't come to the kingdom of Christ in groups. Uh, the Jews believed, hey, we're the chosen people of God, so we're all in the kingdom. We're all on the road together based on our Abrahamic heritage, our Jewish ancestry, based on our circumcision. We're all going into the kingdom together. And I think there are people today who think that they're on the right road to heaven because they were born into a Christian family and they attend church regularly, and so they're just automatically part of the big group that is going to go to heaven together. Or they think that because their parents are very religious people, that they're automatically granted entrance into heaven, kind of like a family pass at Disney World. You know, so, but there are no groups going through the turnstile. Uh, you go through all alone. Salvation is individualized. People have never been saved in pairs. I don't deny that when one believes, such as a parent or a spouse, it may influence another to believe, but everyone's salvation is exclusive and intensely personal. It admits only one at a time. And that's kind of hard because our life is spent rushing around with the crowd. Uh, all our life 
is spent doing what everyone else does, being a part of the group, being a part of the gang, uh, being a part of the system around us, being accepted. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ comes along and he says, you must come and you're going to have to come all by yourself. And to a Pharisee, that meant you're going to have to say goodbye to those people and that system and step out alone. There's a real price to pay. I, I personally know a man who is Greek and was raised in the Greek Orthodox Church who was confronted with the truth of the gospel many years ago, but he refused to receive Christ because to do so would mean that he had to turn his back on his Greek religious heritage and he would lose his family. And there are many Roman Catholics and Jews who are the same way. To repent and trust Christ alone for their salvation is to lose their family and friends so they won't do it. But you don't come to God's kingdom in groups. You come in by an individual act of faith. You must enter the narrow gate and you must enter alone. And let me add this, you must enter with great difficulty. Now I know that may shock some of you because we hear all the time that getting saved is easy. Uh, all you have to do is just believe, recite a prayer, walk an aisle, raise your hand or whatever. And we've made it easy. The only problem is that when we get done, most of those people aren't on the right road because they didn't come through the narrow gate. Now, without shocking you too much, let me just say that I believe it's, it's very difficult to be saved. Uh, let me show you why. It says at the end of verse 14, in regard to the narrow gate and the narrow way, and there are few who find it. The first implication is that you, you're not even going to know it's there unless what? Unless you're looking for it. Uh, the Old Testament uh, prophet Jeremiah quoted God as saying, you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. It's Jeremiah 29, 13. I don't believe anyone has ever tripped and fallen into the kingdom of God. I don't believe it's that easy. That's cheap grace. That's easy believism. That's the revivalist approach. Just raise your hand, walk the aisle, sign the card, you're a Christian. There are few who find it implies that you've got to look for it, that you've got to search for it. Let me take it a step further. Turn over to Luke 13, and I'll show you a passage that may shock you. In Luke 13, verse 22, it says that Jesus was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. As a result of his ministry, it's apparent to the people with him that, it was a, that not everyone was responding to his ministry as they thought he should. It's always hard for us to understand why people don't respond to Christ, isn't it? And so in verse 23, someone says to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Obviously, whoever said that to him observed that there weren't a whole lot of people who were responding to Jesus' gospel message. And he said to them, verse 24, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. 
Now, do you see that word strive there? It's this word, the Greek word agonizomai. It's the word from which we get our word agonize. It's the word used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 of an athlete agonizing to win a victory. In Colossians 4.12 of laboring earnestly. In 1 Timothy 6.12 of fighting the good fight of faith. In other words, Jesus says it's going to be an agonizing effort. It's warfare. There's a fervency that is demanded, a striving with difficulty to enter at the narrow gate. And there are many as opposed to the few who will seek to enter it, but won't be able. Now listen carefully. Jesus says it's difficult to get saved. Because first, you've got to be seeking. And although there are many who are seeking, when they find out what it costs to enter, how difficult it is to enter, the agony that they must go through to enter, they're not willing to do that. That's a very strong statement. Listen, Christianity doesn't come by walking an aisle. Christianity doesn't come by being baptized. Christianity doesn't come by reciting a prayer. You don't become a Christian in some cheap and easy fashion. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. There's almost a violence in the process of entering the kingdom. In Luke 16, 16, Jesus said, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is forcing his way into it. In other words, up until John, the old covenant was proclaimed. But since John, it's the gospel that's being proclaimed, and it takes force and violence to enter it. That's what the Greek word means, to overpower by force, to press forward with great effort. Now, this is not what you hear in our contemporary American evangelical culture. But this is what Jesus said. The kingdom is for those who seek it with all their hearts. The kingdom is for those who strive, who agonize to enter it, whose hearts are shattered over their sinfulness, who mourn in meekness, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And being unsatisfied, they long for God to change their life. It's not for people who come along and simply see Jesus as the way out of their problems and circumstances and want him, but without any submission to his authority to run their lives and without any alteration of their behavior and lifestyle. Folks, it's never easy to become a Christian because you've got all of hell's forces against you. Satan and all of his demons and your fallen fresh flesh, and you have to resist all of that. Here's what Bible scholar William Hendrickson said. Here's how he puts it, quote, The kingdom then is not for the weaklings, the waverers, and the compromisers. It is not for Balaam's or rich young rulers or Pilate's or Demas. It is not won by means of deferred prayers and unfulfilled promises and broken resolutions and hesitant testimonies. Rather, it is for the strong and the sturdy, like Joseph and Nathan and Elijah and Daniel and Mordecai and Peter and Paul, and let us not forget Ruth and Deborah and Esther and Lydia." End quote. I believe that 
one of Satan's pervasive lies in the world today is that it's easy to become a Christian. It's not easy at all. It's a very narrow gate. You go through all alone and you go through agonizing all the way over your sinfulness. You have to be broken in your spirit. Someone might say, well, that sounds like you're talking about human effort. No. When you come to Christ in brokenness, recognizing that you cannot do it, repenting over your sin, then Christ pours his grace into you to strengthen you to enter his kingdom. In your brokenness, his power becomes your resource. You must enter. You must enter the narrow gate. You must enter alone. You must enter with difficulty and you must enter spiritually naked. You can't carry your baggage through a turnstile. You, so this narrow gate is the gate of self-denial. It's the gate. It's not the gate that admits the superstars uh, who want to carry all their garbage in. It's the gate where you strip off all self-righteousness and good works and whatever else you're trying to bring. You unload it or you don't go through. Now, once again, let me quote William Hendrickson on this matter of entering the gate, narrow gate, spiritually naked. He writes this, quote, In order to enter by the narrow gate, one must strip himself of many things, such as a consuming desire for earthly goods, the unforgiving spirit, selfishness, and especially self-righteousness. The narrow gate is there, the gate of self-denial and obedience. End quote. You know, the rich young ruler came to the gate, didn't he? He really searched for how to enter it, and he found Jesus, and he said, What do I do? What do I need to do to enter the kingdom? I've come to find out. I've been searching. I want to be in the kingdom. And Jesus went right to the heart of the issue. He went right to the heart of the problem and gave him a test of his willingness to submit to the Christ's lordship. He said, the one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You know what Jesus did? He hit him right at his suitcase. He was trying to get through the narrow gate with the baggage of his riches. And frankly, on the other hand, he had self-righteousness because when the Lord had talked about all the other things in the law that he should have been doing, he claimed that he'd done all those things. So here he comes with self-righteousness in one hand and all of his money in the other, and he couldn't get through. And the Bible says, but when he had heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He had sought the narrow gate, but he wasn't willing to go through the process of denying self, agonizing over his sin, and stripping himself spiritually naked that's necessary to enter the gate. I fear that there will be many people sitting in the pews of Lakeside Community Chapel this morning who are on the wrong road after going through the wrong gate. The street sign on the corner may have said Heavenly Boulevard in Jesus' way, but it's not. There must be a jettisoning, jettisoning of self, of self-confidence and self-righteousness. Jesus put it very simply in Luke 18, 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. What is it that marks a little child? It's utter dependency and complete trust. 
Saving faith is not just an act of the mind. It is a stripping of the self, an abandoning of self-righteousness in utter nakedness. It's the tax collector beating his breast. God be merciful to me, the sinner. Jesus is dealing here <clears throat> with a danger of an easy salvation that says, just come to Jesus. It's so easy. Just believe. All you got to do is believe. Pray a little prayer. Folks, there's nothing wrong with believing. There's nothing wrong with praying a prayer. But those things do not bring true salvation when they occur in a vacuum. We are nothing and have nothing to commend ourselves to God. Another thing the narrow gate demands is repentance. You can't come through unless your heart is repentant over sin, turning from sin to serve the living God. When John the Baptist was preparing people to receive the Messiah, they were coming and they were being baptized because they wanted to have their sins cleansed. Charles Spurgeon says, quote, you and your sins must separate or you and your God will never come together. No one, no one sin may bring, may you keep. They must all be given up. They must be brought out like Canaanite kings from the cave and be hanged up in the sun, end quote. Now, don't misunderstand. Spurgeon wasn't teaching that you have to clean up your life first and then come to Christ. No, what he taught and what is true is that when you come to Christ, you come in repentance, turning from your sin. You don't say, well, I receive Christ, but I'm not willing to give up my favorite pet sin over there. That's not repenting of your sin, and that's not genuine salvation. The way of repentance is turning from our own way and our own righteousness to God's way and God's righteousness, and it's the only way to keep from perishing. The repentant life will be a changed life. The primary message of John's first epistle is that a truly redeemed life will manifest itself in a transformed life in which confession of sin, obedience to God's will, love of God's other children, and the practice of righteousness are all normal and habitual. That's what Jesus said back in John 15, 8. He said, my father is glorified by this, <clears throat> that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Spiritual fruit bearing, bringing forth the fruit of the spirit in your life is the evidence of genuine salvation. You see, salvation is not addition. Salvation is transformation. Someone who says, well, I'm a Christian and there's no sign of obedience in his or her life may think they're a Christian, but they got on the wrong road. Sure, it was marked heaven and sure it was it may have been marked Jesus, but it it isn't the right road because Jesus says the right road is hard to find. It starts with a very narrow gate. Now, in contrast, there's a wide gate. And we don't need to say much about it. It's obvious by contrast. The wide gate is so broad, everybody can get through it together. You don't have to come in alone. The whole gang's coming with you. They join your religion or denomination or church. They observe your list of rules and rights and regulations. And so they all get through the gate together. There's nothing individual about it. Self-denial is not a requirement. In fact, you can bring your sin, your immorality, your lack of repentance, your lack of commitment to Christ. You can just join in. 
Here's what another Bible scholar says about the wide gate. Quote, the wide gate can be entered with bag and baggage. The old sinful nature, all it contains and all its accessories, can easily march right through. It's the gate of self-indulgence. So wide is that gate that an enormous, clamorous multitude can all enter at once, and there will be plenty of room to spare, unquote. So those are the two gates, and those two gates lead to two ways. And that brings us to the next point. But before I continue on, let me pause and find out if there's any questions or comments at this point. Because I've been going hard. Yes? On the verses about the striving and the hardship in the gate, is that nothing to do with progressive sanctification and all with dealing with salvation? He's talking about entering the the door, striving to enter through the door. So, so it's salvation. it's salvation. Okay. When I was saved, it was well explained to me that you turn you repent, you turn your back on the world, will do hard, but God will help you. And I considered it for just a short time. I guess that was the agoni agonizing. Mm -hmm. And and. The man's hand was held out. This is a gift. It's a gift. It's a free gift. All you have to do is reach out and take it. Of course, he knew <laughs> predestination, election, and foreknowledge. And I thought I chose. And then I read later on that he chose me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. What? Let's look at the two ways. What are the two ways? Well, verse 13 says that the wide gate leads to the broad way, and the verse 14, the small narrow gate leads to the tight, constricted hard way. The broad way is the way of the ungodly, and the narrow gate's the way of the godly. That's exactly what it says in Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, explains how the godly walk. Verses 4 and 5 explain how the ungodly walk. And then verse 6 wraps it all up with the results for both. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The choice has always been the same, the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. Now let's look at the broad way. I mean, from a human perspective, this is the road that everyone wants to be on. It's like driving on an interstate highway where everything is smooth sailing. Most everyone on this, most everyone is on this highway. It's big, it's broad with plenty of room for everyone. Uh, there's no dangerous curves. No precipice that you might go over. And there are plenty of signs that tell you that you're on the road to heaven or nirvana or paradise or whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> There's lots of room. You can go at your own pace. It's easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented. Uh, there are a few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. Uh, there's room for diverse theology. Just as long as you profess to love Jesus or at least claim to be religious, you're okay. Uh, sin is tolerated. Truth is moderated. Humility is ignored. All the desires of the fallen heart are fed on that road. There's no need for an attitude like the Beatitudes. God's word is praised but not studied. His standards are admired but not followed. There's no need for hard internal moral standards. You can just go along with a typical 
mechanical religiosity that is no more than hypocrisy. It takes absolutely no character. It's, it's like a dead fish floating downstream. It's very easy. Prevailing current just carries you along. Ephesians 2.2 calls it the course of this world. Proverbs 14.12 refers to it as a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It's a broad way. Uh, no rules, no standards, except those made by man to fit into your comfortable little system. And Psalm 1.6 says the way of the wicked will perish. Sadly, many people in our world recognize that they're on this broad highway to hell, and they don't care. They would rather be on that road because the other road is too hard. They recognize the difference, but they don't care because they're living for today and all of the supposedly great times of this life, and it's a much easier road to take. For example, back in 1979, the heavy metal rock group ACDC became famous for their song, Highway to Hell, uh, which glorified taking the broad road to destruction. Uh, in fact, they were nominated for a Grammy Award for that song. Listen to some of the lyrics. Living easy, li loving free, season ticket on a one-way ride, asking nothing, leave, let me be, taking everything in my stride. Don't need reason, don't need rhyme, ain't nothing I'd rather do, Going down party time, my friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell, on the highway to hell, highway to hell, I'm on the highway to hell. And it goes on from there. So sad, isn't it? I remember when that song was extremely popular in the 1980s. I was called out one night to a major fatal uh, crash on Broadway in Dunedin which I've always thought was a very apropos name for the road in light of what happened there that night. An old VW van with two young men who were rowdy, wild, godless characters were traveling at a high rate of speed when they passed another car and tried to get back into their lane before a car coming in the opposite direction got to them. But they didn't make it. They clipped the left front corner of the car uh, that was coming at them, and their van skittered, skidded out of control, rolled over several times, ejecting one of them, uh, along with all their vehicle contents on the road, and both of them were killed. And one of my duties that night was to photograph the scene. And as I was taking pictures, the lead investigator said, hey, get a picture of this. And laying in the middle of the road was a cassette tape of ACDC's song, Highway to Hell that had been thrown out of their van during the crash. I took a picture I've always considered to be the saddest, most ironic picture I've ever taken in my life. Uh, those two young men did love that song, which perfectly described their lives, and at their death, it became the visible symbol of what happened to them. And their attitude describes many people in our world. They know they are living lives that deserve God's judgment of eternal hell, but they don't care. Because taking that highway is much easier in this life than taking the other path that Jesus describes here. As opposed to that broad highway, there's another way 
which in verse 14 Jesus calls narrow. At least that's the way my New American Standard translates it. But the Greek word here, that's used here, can be translated as to squeeze, to press upon, to constrict, to confine. It was sometimes used metaphorically of afflicting or persecuting someone, of making their life difficult. I looked at multiple different Bible versions and found it translated four different ways. Narrow, hard, constricted, and difficult. Uh, so it's not just a narrow way. That can be a little misleading because a two-lane road is narrow when compared to a six-lane highway, but it can still be an easy way to get somewhere. But the idea here is that this way is constricted and confining, squeezing in on those who are on it. It's not an easy way to take. It's like a narrow path on the edge of a precipice. It's a very narrow way. It's hemmed in on both sides by the chastening hand of God. You step off this side and whack, you get your spiritual knuckles hit. Same on the other side. The requirements are great and strict and clear-cut, and there's no room for any deviation or departure from them. It must be the desire of our heart to fulfill those, knowing full well that when we fail, God will chasten, and then God will wonderfully and lovingly forgive and set us on our feet again. You say, well, it's such a hard, constricted, narrow way. Why would anyone want to choose that way? Because the wonderful thing about it is that in Christ, we not only have a Savior, but a burden bearer. He helps us carry all our burdens, including the burden of obedience. So all the hardness and all the narrowness and all the restrictions are borne by Christ himself. Remember what he said in Matthew 11, 29, 30. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is what? Light. Light. I mean, when someone thinks he or she wants to get on that way, they better take stock of what it is they're asking for. Let me show you this in Luke 14. Luke 14. Let's look at this for a minute. Beginning in verse 25, it says, Now large crowds were going along with him. So multitudes are following, of people are following Jesus. And then he turns to them and says, There's some things you ought to know. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Try that on someone the next time you share the gospel with them. Say, so you say you want to become a Christian. Okay, you need to be willing to hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, even your own children if need be. In other words, if you're going to be Christ's disciple, you have to be willing to give up every other relationship in the world. You must love him so much that it's as though you hate everyone else, even those who are closest to you, and then you have to be willing to die for him. 
And then Jesus goes on to illustrate his point. Verse 28. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not sit first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. And then he says this in verse 33. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Jesus really drew a hard line, didn't he? If you're not willing to say no to everything else and to say, I will, as God enables me, walk that narrow path, knowing full well that you cannot do it on your own by your own achievement, but knowing that God will give you the grace to do it in your weakness through his strength, then you're coming to him legitimately. Uh, legitimately. He says, he even said in John 15, that those who claim to be his disciples had better consider persecution. Verses 19 to 21 of John 15, he says, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my namesake, because they do not know the one who sent me. And then a few verses later in John 16, 2, he says, an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. He says, the world's coming after you because you represent me and what they did to me, they're going to do to you. And in the process, they'll think that God is pleased with what they're doing. You see, you don't walk on this narrow way in your bare feet. This is not a lush meadow. The road is hard and rocky. Jesus never presented it following him as a soft option for the weak-kneed and weak-hearted. You declare war on Satan when you start, and Satan declares war on you. The one whom we formerly served becomes our greatest enemy, and the ideas and ways we once held dear become our greatest temptations and pitfalls. You say, well, that sounds awful. No, because all of the hardness is picked up by Christ. And so the way becomes a way of beauty. So there's two gates and two ways, and there's two destinations. But we're going to have to stop because we don't have enough time to talk about the rest of the two destinations and the two crowds today. So we will pick that up and finish it next week and then move on in to the next portion. Any uh, other comments or questions now? Yes? If we love Christ, everything will be diminished in his power or in his uh, influence. In value. value. Yeah, in which case it is easy. Mm -hmm. I'm not speaking from experience. <laughs> I'm speaking from the scriptures. Yeah, he, it, the way is not easy. It's hard. But 
it's joyful because he bears the burden for us. Anything else? Yes, Frank. I think the difficulty comes in what Paul said in Romans 7. I find myself doing the things I don't want to do and things I do want to do I don't do. Mm-hmm. It's always a battle. Even if you love the Lord, you've got that flesh that's constantly battling. All the time. And you find yourself, it, it's a, it is difficult. It just is. Yeah. We live in a world that uh, the flesh loves. You find yourself doing things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And then you get yourself mad and say, I don't do that. I, and what's worse is you say, I did the same thing three days ago, Lord. Why am I doing it again? I repented, I prayed and confessed it as sin three days ago, and now I find myself doing it again. It's a constant battle. Constant, constant battle. So, in fact, I would go so just me, my own personal thing, I would just go so far as to say that if somebody claims to be a Christian, if they don't have that battle, I agree 100%. The, the people who... I, I still remember teaching this class back many years ago now. We were meeting. In, remember when we used to meet in the lunchroom? And after class, this young lady came to me and she said, I really don't know if I'm a Christian. I said, why? Because I just seem to spat, battle with sin all the time. And I fight it and I confess it, but it just keeps coming back. And I said, that's the best sign in the world that you're a true believer. Because unbelievers don't battle sin. They, they don't fight it. So, all right. Frank, close us with prayer.